Well, in this next portion of Paul's letter, we find him dealing with wrong conclusions and false allegations. Now, under the infallible inspiration of the Spirit of God, Paul, in chapter 1, has laid down what in many ways is a devastating analysis and diagnosis of the sinfulness of all of us in our sins, uh, how sin really is in the eyes of God, and of the certain judgment and wrath of God which we in our sins have brought upon ourselves and which we fully deserve and for which we are without excuse. It's the reality that all of us need to hear, but none of us want to know, at least not while we're still far from God. And Paul knows from experience that these emphatic statements uh, will very frequently be met with a barrage of objections. And in chapter 2, he provides an immediate response uh, to some of the most burning issues which people bring up. Uh, But there's another issue which Paul must also address, which concerns his words either being misunderstood or misapplied or wrongly reported. And people are jumping to wrong conclusions about what has been taught. And on the basis of that are often making false and wrong allegations about Paul and what it is that he's teaching. Uh, He's been here before. And so he seeks to snuff them out before they're able to gain any traction. Uh, I've had similar experiences, um, particularly talking to people over things like Calvinistic theology, the doctrines of grace, probably to a lesser degree, my understanding of the book of Revelation, things like that. Uh, What Paul is, is actually teaching about Israel later on in this letter. Uh, but primarily uh, what it means uh, to be someone who uh, is a lover of reformed doctrine. And in discussing these things with people, people who who have either never heard it before uh, and who think they know what it is that I believe and teach, uh, they will often say, ah, so you believe A, B and C and X, Y and Z. And, And you don't do this and you won't accept that. And frequently, my reply has been, actually, no, that's not what I believe. And that's not my position on those things at all. Oh, so you're not Calvinistic then? Yes, I am. And at that point, they're completely baffled. Because such people often have heard false reports about what it means to be a Reformed Baptist. And they've come to wrong conclusions about what it is that, as Reformed Baptists, we believe and stand for and hold fast. And on that basis, um, either they themselves or from others, wrong conclusions and false allegations are forthcoming. In fairness, it's probably the case for those of other persuasions as well uh, regarding their position. But Paul knew it, I've known it, probably some of you have known it too. Well, Paul probably has this uh, even more frequently and he immediately now tackles some of these wrong conclusions that people can come to and, and wants to set the record straight as to what it is that he does actually believe and teach. I suspect that Paul by now 
has grown skin thick enough uh, not to feel defeated or too demoralised personally when he is wrongly represented, but what he knows he can't permit is for the truths of the gospel and for the truths concerning Christ to be misrepresented. The dilemma he has is that to misquote and misrepresent him as a gospel preacher is to misrepresent the gospel and is to misrepresent the truths about the Lord Jesus Christ. That almost certainly is his greatest concern. There's a sense in which him being maligned personally is not quite the issue but like all Christians Paul understands that he is an ambassador of Christ he's a herald of the word and so for the sake of Christ and for the sake of the gospel Paul must respond to these false allegations it's not really his own reputation he's trying to uphold it's the reputation of God and Christ and the gospel to malign Paul is to malign Christ So please turn your attention, first of all, to verses 1 to 8, where Paul will deal with some of these misconceptions. And he does so uh, by asking a number of questions. He kind of takes on the role of the person who might ask these things and then seeks to answer them. And the questions are posed in all the odd-numbered verses, 1, 3, 5 and 7. And then his response to each of those comes in all the even-numbered verses, 2, 4, 6 and 8. So it's actually a very easy-to-follow format that Paul lays down. The questions in all the odd numbers and his response on all the even ones. And here's the first one. Well, given all that you've just said then, Paul, is there any advantage in being a Jew? And this is verses 1 and 2. If our position and traditions as God's Old Testament people, if that counts for nothing, if our circumcision counts for nothing before God, is there any advantage in being a Jew? Very much so, says Paul, and for many reasons, but here's the chief one. To you, God gave his revealed and inspired word. That's what he means by the oracles of God. The Bible Well, at least, of course, what we record as the Old Testament, which was their Bible. God gave you that. God has revealed to you his truth. He's committed it to you. He's entrusted it to you. God has told you everything you need to know in order that you can be in right standing before him. And yet you're not. These things that I've been talking about on their own, they will not save you. They will not make you right with God. But what an advantage God has given you, nevertheless. And this actually only makes your unbelief all the more tragic. And of course, for many here, these same principles that Paul is addressing, they apply to you and to me. If you were raised in a Christian home, if you've regularly been instructed from the Bible, if you've had the way of salvation made known to you, and if you've been brought to church to hear it again, God has placed you in a position of great privilege and immense advantage. You've been exposed to these great truths from your childhood, as Paul would say to Timothy. In Timothy's case, 
it had made him wise for salvation. Because, of course, that was the Old Testament scriptures that Paul was referring to. Even the Old Testament scriptures were able to make Timothy wise to salvation once he'd heard Christ preached. Two men jump out of an aeroplane at 10,000 feet and start to plummet towards the ground in freefall. They soon reach what's known as terminal velocity. It's about 120 miles an hour. Most people think that's quite fast enough, thank you. And then they're at 5,000 feet, 4,000, 3,000, 2,000. One man has a parachute strapped to his back. The other one doesn't. A thousand feet. Both men are still falling side by side. 500 feet. 400. 300. 200. 50. 10 feet off the ground. Still doing 120 miles an hour. Has either of those men an advantage over the other. Does he? Most certainly he does. He's got a parachute strapped to his back. Will the death of one not seem more tragic than the other? Most certainly. Will people be asking that of you if you reject this great privilege and blessing and advantage that God has given you but you seek to cast it aside? That's what Paul is saying. Three things need to be said here. If you have enjoyed, if you still enjoy such spiritual privileges and advantages, things like a Christian home, things like sitting under faithful Bible teaching and gospel preaching week by week. For those of you who are now Christian believers, your hearts should be welling up with such thankfulness that God would have had you born into the home in which you were born and had to have blessed you with such a privilege. Have you ever paused to try and imagine perhaps what growing up in this world with unbelieving parents might have been like for you? What kind of atmosphere in the home you may have had to live in? What kind of abuse even you may have endured? What kind of moral code, what kind of values, what kind of lifestyle might have been presented to you as normal? even if yours in an unbelieving home had actually been a home of actually quite a loving and stable environment, because many can be. What would it have been like not to have had the truth and the reality of God's word so lovingly presented to you? Can you imagine having grown up knowing nothing of the Bible and of the gospel? Of course, I'm aware that for some here that was the case. I'll come to that in a moment. 
This, of, this, of course, is not to undermine God's sovereignty in every conversion. Regardless of your background, God can save you. The backgrounds that are represented here, those who've been saved, are very vast and many. But what a privilege if you grew up with all of these spiritual blessings and advantages. Or perhaps you're someone and you're sat here right now and that's your position. You feel it's actually the biggest hindrance in the world because it prevents you from being able to do what you want to do. Why aren't I allowed all the freedoms that all my friends enjoy? Why can't I use Sundays to do all the things that everyone else is doing and seemingly enjoying themselves? Why do people keep going on at me about my sin and salvation and Jesus? It is the greatest grace and kindness that God could have shown you. Even if right now you persist in unbelief. And our prayer for you has to be that unlike countless numbers of Jews in the Bible, most of that vast number who came out of Egypt were lost in the wilderness. You will not waste it. You will not discard it. You will not throw it away. But the God in his great grace will show you just how blessed you are to have been exposed to all of these things and in his grace show you your great need of Christ. The third thing to remember is that you can't rely upon these circumstances in which you find yourself in order to consider yourself being in good standing before God. You can only rely upon Christ. And have you? That's the question. And maybe you were born into a situation where none of these privileges and advantages existed. You were not born into a Christian household. You were never taken to church or even to Sunday school or anything similar. Well, you have no grounds for feeling bitter or angry with God. Here you are, nevertheless, sitting in church, sitting under the word of God, learning of Christ and learning of his salvation. And even though you had none of those things, God in his kindness has brought you here. However it was that God did it, God has done this great kindness to you in bringing you, even from a godless environment, to be amongst the Lord's own people this evening so that you too can only be thankful for his grace towards you. How gracious and kind the Lord has also been to you. He could have left you out there in the darkness of the world, but he didn't. And he is to be thanked and praised. Second question. If all Jews are not saved, doesn't this mean that God has actually been unfaithful? Verses 3 and 4. 
The Jews, of course, believed that as a nation, all of them kind of had an automatic inclusion when it comes to God's salvation and God's kingdom. Just the very fact that Abraham is our father and we bear the marks of circumcision and we do X, Y, and Z, we're in. Given the history of God's judgment against so many of them in the Old Testament, on account of their sin and their idolatry and their wickedness, it's, it's hard to see really how any of them could think that way, but many of them clearly did, which is why Paul has to address it and work so hard here in Romans and also in Galatians to try and get Jews to see this big picture, the true picture. Hence all this teaching of true righteousness being according to faith in Christ and true circumcision being that of the heart, not the body. But Paul, if you're saying that so many of us Jews are not saved, if so many of us are not right with God, if so many of us are not in his kingdom, surely that must mean that God has been unfaithful to everything that he said and promised in the Old Testament. Mustn't it? Certainly not, is Paul's reply. And in the Greek, he uses the strongest word that there is in the Greek language to say no. Their problem is their faulty understanding of the Old Testament. What God has said is true, is always true. God will always be found and shown to be truthful. It's unthinkable that God could have been unfaithful to his word. Regardless of what men and women may do or say, what God has said always stands. The entire world may stand opposed to the, to the truth of God. It feels sometimes as if we're not very far away from being in that situation. But it will be the entire world that is wrong and God who is in the right. We have to be assured of this. Christians, if we're not careful, can find themselves lulled and pulled by worldly thinking, by worldly reasoning which sometimes can sound so reasonable and plausible and is promoted by such nice people. But things which cause them to begin to doubt God's word. Well, I know that's what, God words, God, that's what God's word appears to say on this subject, but listening to these opinions over here, maybe they're right. Maybe our understanding of God's word is wrong. Maybe God's got it wrong. Be careful, Christian friends, because you'll be on thin ice at the top of a very icy slope when you begin to think that way. This world came into existence the way God says it did. God is who he says he is. He is to be worshipped the way he says he is to be worshipped. Sin is what God says it is. 
Salvation from sin is what God says it is. The gospel of Jesus Christ is what God says it is. Marriage is what God says it is. The church is what God says it is. Men and women are who God says they are. The roles of men and women are what God says they are. It doesn't matter if the entire world shouts no. The entire world is wrong and God is true and God is faithful. Dr. Steve Lawson describes Bible-believing Christians as being on an island of truth in the middle of a vast ocean of lies and apostasy. God is true, says Paul, and every man a liar. Believe him. Believe on him. Trust him. The third thing, verses 5 and 6, if our unrighteousness extols God's righteousness, is God's judgment fair? The, the process of reasoning that Paul has experienced people going through gradually becomes more and more perverse. A jeweller had a most glorious diamond pendant to sell. And he wanted to show it off at its very best. So what will he do? He'll set the diamond pendant against the blackest velvet he can find and then shine a light on it. And against the blackness, the diamond will appear to shine with even greater brilliance. The argument here, perverse as it sounds, is this. Isn't that what our sinfulness does for God? Doesn't the darkness of our sin only serve to highlight the brilliance of God's purity and righteousness? And if that's the case, if that's what we're doing for him, why would he punish us for it? It's a rather perverse sort of reasoning but you can kind of see the reasoning behind it where Paul says I speak as a man he's pointing out that this isn't what he thinks he's simply reflecting the way that sinful human thinking and reasoning lurches from one error to another becoming more and more ridiculous really as they go along but this is the question Surely, if our sinfulness is kind of doing God a favour in showing people how good he is, why would he then take that out on us? How will Paul respond? Well, would you have God leave all sinfulness unjudged and unpunished? Do you think that's what I'm teaching? Would you have people be 
as wicked as it's possible for them to be, just so that God looks even better. And you think that's what I'm teaching? And you think that on that basis, God should not judge you? I'm sure Paul found many of these arguments, quite frankly, ridiculous. But he knows that this is how some have allowed themselves to start to think. And these are some of the ways in which they're trying to discredit him and the gospel. There's a different version of this that goes on in the church today. It goes like this. If we go soft on sin, if we go along with the sins of the world, if we find a way of tolerating sin and accepting all people as they are, and if we drop the R word, repent. Put that to one side. If we embrace the world's ideals of tolerance and diversity and inclusion, that would surely be a fine way of reinforcing the message that God is love, which he is, and that he accepts everyone just as they are. Except he doesn't, does he? Christ died for sinners as they are in their sin. He calls sinners as they are in their sin. But he calls them to repent from their sin and to sin no more. People who pursue this modern version are either trying to find a way of excusing their own sinful disobedience or they simply don't have the backbone to stand against it. And this kind of wicked falsehood is precisely what some people are slanderously claiming that I am teaching, says Paul, as he continues in verses 7 and 8. And it rolls over into this question, if my sin only emphasises God's truth, isn't that a good thing? And Paul responds to this final misconception with a question. So, so why don't we all just be as sinful as we possibly can be, as some suggest that we are teaching? Do you not see that such talk only demonstrates how justified God is to condemn you? People who think and talk this way they're only proving that they are unsaved and unconverted and unrepentant and they are fully deserving of the judgment that God will one day dispense. The way these opponents of Paul are speaking, the kinds of things that they are suggesting Paul is getting people to do. Is that the kind of life that Christ lived? Is that the kind of example that Christ set? Let's live as sinful as possible just to show up God's righteousness? Was that Christ's life? 
Did he not live a life of perfect obedience to the word of God? Was he not constantly quoting and affirming the Old, the Old Testament scriptures to back up what he was teaching? Was he not repeatedly saying it is written to affirm the truthfulness and faithfulness of God? And that which the Spirit of God has inspired the prophets to speak? Was he not constantly calling people to repent and to turn from their sin? And must we not likewise stand firm in gospel truth as Jesus and his apostles stood firm? And Paul draws this opening section of the letter from chapter 1 through to this point in chapter 3. He draws it to its conclusion as he provides us with this very forthright summary in verses 9 to 20. Uh, he kind of concludes this whole opening section of his letter now with these verses. And the whole thing can simply be uh, reduced down to this. There are none righteous and all are guilty before God. There are none righteous. All are guilty before God. This has been Paul's opening salvo, if you like, in his letter. And this is his concluding statement. If you imagine uh, a lawyer in court uh, bringing uh, the prosecution case to its close and bringing this final summary, that's kind of what Paul is doing here. Do we who are Christians suppose or claim that we are somehow any better than all of these people we've just been talking about in their sinfulness? Not at all. We are no better than they. We're not claiming to be. By the phrase Jews and Greeks, Paul is kind of bringing everybody into the equation here. All of mankind is included in everything I've just said. He's including all Christian believers, for they are either converted Jews or converted Greeks, Gentiles. And the only thing that separated them is that by God's grace, God has converted them and saved them. But this is universal, Paul teaches. The whole world in its natural state is under sin, and if under sin, under judgment, and if under judgment, facing condemnation. As it's written, Paul quotes from the Old Testament in verses 10 to 18. I haven't invented anything new, Paul is saying. It's all there in your scriptures. These scriptures God entrusted to you. These scriptures which have been such a privilege and advantage to you. It's all there. Verses 10 to 12 are taken from Psalm 14. There is none righteous, no, not one. An emphatic statement from the mouth of God. Ignore it if you must, but it's still the truth. There is none righteous. Ignore it if you dare, but you will still be judged and condemned. There is none who understands. The mind, sinful minds, are blinded to God's truth. That's why it needs the power of God to break through in the gospel, through the preaching of the gospel. There is none who seeks after God. That's talking about the will, the volition. No one in their sin seeks after God. He must call them. He must draw them. 
and in so doing impart spiritual life and understanding into their soul and into the darkness of their minds, shed his light. They don't seek him, he seeks them. You weren't seeking him, he sought you. You didn't choose him, he chose you. They've all turned aside, they have together become unprofitable. There is none who does good, not one. That's our conduct. Now it is true, none of us are as bad as we could be. But all of us are far worse than we think we are. Before God, we're like filthy rags. In verses 13 to 14, well, you can find these words if you look at Psalm 5, Psalm 53, Psalm 140, Psalm 10, it's all there. Their throat is an open tomb. With their tongues, they've practiced deceit. The poison of asps. Asps are renowned for being quite a small snake, but their, their bite is bigger than their size, uh, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Note how comprehensively Paul addresses the sins of speech. Look how much space he gives to the sins of the mouth. Hatred, spite, malice, bitterness, slander, gossip, lies, the throat, the tongue, the lips, the mouth, all vile in their sin. Their feet Swift to shed blood, destruction and misery are in their ways. The way of peace they have not known, Isaiah 59. The feet, wherever we go, whatever we do, the evidence of our sin is sure to be found and is fueled by sinful and godless passions and desires. Conclusion, there is no fear of God in their eyes. Psalm 36. From the top of your head to the bottom of your feet you are sinful through and through. That's what Paul is saying. That's what the scriptures teach. This is God's truth about you, verse 19. And it silences all your excuses. It declares your guilt. And if you don't face up to that now, the day is coming when God will leave you no choice but to face up to it. But then it will be too late. The law of God, verse 20, is not a ladder up which you may climb and through your achievements ascend up to God under your own steam. The law only serves to prove how totally inadequate and helpless and hopeless and sinful you are. But, we didn't read verse 21, but there's a but coming which we'll be looking at next week, God willing. But Paul has laid out the hopelessness, the helplessness of our sinful condition, the certainty of judgment, 
but God. Here is the message of the gospel. But God. God has intervened. God has done something about it. In the Lord Jesus Christ, he's made a way of release. He's made a way of salvation. Have a look at that description of you and me in our sins in verses 10 to 18. The Lord laid upon Christ the iniquity of us all. All of that was laid on Christ. He himself bore in his body our sins on the tree that we, having died to sins because we died with him, we were crucified with him, we might live to righteousness by whose stripes you are healed. But God. Without chapters 1 to 320. But God. Maybe doesn't seem so significant. But it's huge, isn't it? It's huge. There is life for a look at the crucified one. There is life at this moment for thee. Look, sinner, look unto him and be saved unto him who was nailed on the tree. Take with rejoicing from Jesus at once the life everlasting he gives and know with assurance you never shall die since Jesus, your righteousness, lives Look, look, look and live. There is life for a look at the crucified one. There is life at this moment for thee. Let us pray. Our glorious God and Father, Our sins are laid bare in your most holy word. Your wrath, your anger, your righteous judgment laid open before us. But how we praise you, how we rejoice and give thanks. that even while we were still in our sins, 
you loved us. You sent your own son into this sinful world that through him we might be saved. Lord, impress this great gospel upon our hearts and minds, we pray. Our prayer, O Lord, is that none may leave this evening unsure of where they stand. And our heartfelt prayer is that all may leave standing firm in Christ and in Christ alone. Hear us, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.